In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is for Christians too. The cross of Jesus is for Christians. The forgiveness of sins is for Christians. The scriptures tell us that Christ was crucified for the ungodly, and that our God is a God who justifies the ungodly. We never cease to be ungodly. No matter how long ago it was that we were baptized, no matter how sanctified we've become or mature in our faith, we never cease to be ungodly because of that sinful flesh which still clings to us. Who will deliver us from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And the delivery from this body of death takes place through death. So that death can be seen as an ultimate circumcision. The cutting off of the sinful flesh. It can be seen as the fulfillment of the first part of baptism. Finally, the daily drowning of the old Adam in the baptismal waters is complete. In death, it is only the old man that dies, not the new man that Christ has created within. Death, too, can be seen as the final conformity into the image of the one who died for us. Our flesh finally crucified with Christ and buried forever, that we might rise with him. We never outgrow our need for the gospel. I tell this story fairly frequently, so pardon me. I'm already becoming the old pastor that repeats himself. But there was a time when I was in my car driving down the freeway, and I was listening to a certain evangelical radio station that plays in our vicinity. And I was at a time where it would have been nice to hear a little gospel. And lo and behold, what I heard was a marvelous preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. A marvelous preaching of the laws, holy, just, and good requirements, and how we had all fallen short. And then that followed by a marvelous preaching of Christ crucified, bearing my sins to remove them from me forever. And it was followed by these words. Now that's for all of you unbelievers. But for you Christians. And then what followed was your very typical, you're not sanctified enough, you're not trying hard enough, get better, get after it, no gospel for you. We never outgrow our need for the gospel. And we see this as so evident when we remember that the penitential psalms, tonight's psalm, Psalm 32, has been prayed by Christians for 2,000 years in unbroken tradition and prayed for some thousand years before that, regularly, recurrently in the liturgical life of God's people. And as that psalm became written in their hearts, in their own private lives. And as you can see from the first two verses, blessed is the one whose 
transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Forgiveness, even for the believer. In fact, always for the believer. It is the center and grounding of our faith. Indeed, these opening lines challenge us. We talked last week a bit how the Psalms cause us to pray in ways that we wouldn't normally pray. How do we typically think of being hashtag blessed? Healthy, blessed. Wealthy, blessed. Beautiful, blessed. And there's a certain truth, all of these things come from God. But then you open Psalm 32 and pray and you get a radically different answer. Forgiven. Blessed. The greatest blessing we can possibly have is God's forgiveness. It outlasts our health, our wealth, and, well, at least for some of you, our beauty. Joke. It outlasts all the other lesser blessings that God gives. The foundational blessing is that forgiveness of sins given us by God. If we have that, we have the greatest blessing there is. This psalm is called a maskil of David, which maskil means wisdom or contemplation. It invites us to slow down and pray it contemplatively. What does that mean? We empty our minds and think of nothing? No. We fill our minds with the Word of God and ponder it. That's Christian contemplation. What do I mean? Well, look at the first two verses again. You'll see that there are three different names or words used for sin. Transgression sin, and iniquity. And similarly, there are three remedies given. Blessed is the one whose transgression, now this would typically mean rebellion, and it would have less to do in this context with particular sins than it would have to do with the orientation of our fleshly hearts. The old Adam in a continual state of rebellion against God. Blessed is the one whose transgression or rebellion is. Forgiven is a fine translation, but the nuanced meaning here is lifted or taken. Now, if you've got a big heavy backpack slung across your shoulders and I lift it off of you, who's bearing the weight of that? I am. And so inherent in this is that it's lifted, this weight of transgression and rebellion is lifted off of you by someone else. By who? God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Forgiveness of our transgression because it's removed by Christ and placed by Christ upon himself. Next line, whose sin is forgiven. And here you'll note the singular, the same way that Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, singular, of the world. 
This is all sins. What we call original sin, that orientation against God, but also all actual sins of thought, word, and deed. All of them smooshed in together into a great big ugly ball called sin, singular. And that sin is covered. This is the language of being blotted out by the blood of Christ or being hidden. So you can think of Adam and Eve's nakedness after sinning in the garden being covered or hidden by the skin of the animal that the Lord slayed. And so it is with us when Christ dies on the cross, he's slain and he is stripped of his garments. And his garments very literally cover one of the ones who crucified him after they cast lots for it. But in a deeper sense, this is what we all receive in baptism. Do you not know, St. Paul writes, that you who have been baptized have put on, have been clothed, covered in Christ. So all sin covered, hidden, such that when God sees us, he sees Jesus. Then finally, verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And here iniquity has the flavoring of perversion or filthiness, abhorrence. God does not count or reckon these things against us. Why? Once again, because he reckons them to Christ. He who knew no sin was made sinful for us, that we who are sinful might be reckoned as the righteous ones of God. So as we meditate on these first two clauses of the prayer of Psalm 32, the first two verses, we see how deeply and how richly they preach to us the gospel of our Savior. Now what if we turn our back from confessing our sins? What if we turn our back on the need for forgiveness? How does that go for us? Just fine at first, but not for long. Verse 3, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. The innermost parts of me decayed in my sin. And they wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, now this is the psalmist speaking to God, the hand of God, your hand, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Why would God place his heavy hand? Why would he afflict those who will not confess? So that they will. So that they will have no choice but to turn to God and confess and be forgiven. That's precisely why he afflicts us that we would turn to him. And then even in the midst of our affliction, that we would come to see his fatherly hand and his fatherly purposes, once again conforming us into the image of his own beloved son. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. So after the psalmist has learned his lesson, not being penitent, not addressing his sin, not receiving God's forgiveness. Finally, his, the hand of the Lord is heavy enough upon him. He turns to God. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. 
I stopped hiding from God. I stopped running away from God. Which, by the way, you can find any number of ways of running away from God without actually going anywhere. We run away from God all the time in our phones, in our TVs, in our alcohol, in our shopping, in our exercise, in whatever the case may be, vice or virtue. We find all manner of ways of fleeing from him. When his hand becomes heavy enough upon us, we turn and acknowledge our sin and confess. We no longer cover it, but we speak truthfully to God about ourselves. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You, O Lord, took away my guilt. You gave me a clean conscience, a right heart you put within me. Verse 6, therefore let everyone who is godly. Wait a minute, I thought we just asserted that there is no one who is godly. Who is a godly one then? A godly one is one who simply speaks the truth. I, a poor, miserable sinner. A godly one is one who has no righteousness of his own, but only that righteousness which Christ gives. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. When is that? Now. And when might that time be over? Any moment. So seize the day, seize the minute, confess and be absolved. Lest, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. That is, what happened when God sent the floodwaters and then suddenly people realized that there was a God and they were sinners and they were going to die? Too late. God's not listening. The day of salvation has come to an end. Don't be like them. Turn now. And what does that mean for us as Christians? It means, as our Lord Jesus Christ says, and as Luther repeated in the first of the 95 Theses, that when Jesus says repent, he means that every day of our lives would be lives of repentance. Lives where we are constantly turning away from our self-centeredness, outward toward Christ and his forgiveness. In this way, we can understand why the psalmist moves in verse 7 to the blessings that God bestows. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And now while this is true generically and poetically, it's concretely and especially true when we come and gather as church together and we hear the singing and the shouts of deliverance and the perfected praise from the mouths of little ones, all making a joyful noise indeed. I will instruct you. Look at this. What happens in verse 8? As we're praying to God, all of a sudden, God speaks. And this is a recurrent theme in the Psalms. As you're praying them along, all of a sudden you realize that God is now speaking to you. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. 
Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. In other words, I've lavished this forgiveness upon you. There's not one single sin of yours that I count against you. You are my beloved child. So would you go on sinning that my grace may abound? By no means. Would you act as though you weren't my child? By no means. So rather, hearken to me. I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. Don't stubbornly persist in sin as if you are a horse or a mule and I've got to get you with bit and bridle and or else you're not going to stay near me. I will do that if I have to, but let's not do it that way. Don't be a mule or a horse. I'll allow you to use the thesaurus for the creative word there. Don't be that. Be the son that I have made you. The psalmist then wraps up in this way. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. It's not what we see, is it? We see the wealthy. We see the successful. We see the powerful. We see the beautiful. And we think, how nice must that be? How truly blessed must they all be? But indeed, if they know not the Lord or his forgiveness, if they've turned their back on him, they are wicked. Despite the colorful shell on the outside, inside is a rotten egg. And many are their sorrows. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. We come back to that theme, to trust in the Lord, not in ourselves, not in our own righteousness. To say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit. Not to say that I believe they exist, but I trust Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I trust the one true God to blot out my iniquities and save me. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Did you hear what you are? Righteous. There are no second-class Christians. You are all cleansed by the blood of Jesus and righteous in his sight. You never outgrow the gospel. You never outgrow the cross. You never outgrow the forgiveness of sins. God be praised for that. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Please rise.